Hi, everyone, and welcome to Murder and Merlot. We are a true crime book club podcast. I'm your host, Tara. And I'm your host, Michelle. How's it going, Michelle? It's going pretty good. Yeah, are you excited to talk about Waco today? I am pumped to talk about Waco. No, finally, it's been a long thing in like, the making. <laughs> since I watched the first episode of the Netflix series to now, it feels yes. like forever ago, but I am so, so, so excited. Yes, me to too. To hear your take on it. So you can finally mind dump and talk about all the things I've been wanting to talk about for yeah, months. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it's interesting because we've read both books that like yes. the two different sides and uh, I'm very, very excited. It's going to be great. Yes. But before that, there's some current events that we wanted to touch on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this week, I'm just going to pull it up here because I've got it on my computer in front of me. The Golden State Killer, also known as Joseph James D'Angelo, confessed and pled guilty to 13 counts of first-degree murder and special circumstances, including murder committed during burglaries and rapes, as well as 13 counts of kidnapping. He was also accused of over 50 sexual assaults during his killing spree between 1975 and 1986, but he wasn't able to be charged for those because of California's statute of limitations. But that was huge. Huge. He, and he pled guilty in a plea so that he avoided the death penalty. Right. Well, I mean, he's in his 70s. He's going to spend... He's going to die yeah. in there anyways. So. He's going to die in there anyways. Even before he would have been processed for the death penalty, he'd probably be dead in there. Yeah, so, exactly. I mean, at least this gives the family some closure. And some of his victims were even there. Like some of his sexual assault victims were in his confession. And yeah. Yes. That was, was fantastic to see. And I saw a group photo of them all. And yeah, yeah that was very cool. It was amazing. It's huge. It's a, yeah. a huge win for yeah. the true crime world. Yes, it was true crime history. It was so exciting. It was very cool. Yeah. yeah. The only other current events is the new Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah. On Netflix. Right? Yeah. I haven't watched it yet, but I'm so excited. I watched one episode and uh, it is different, but it's still good. And mm -hmm. my favorite part was in the opening credits, like they have the Unsolved Mysteries across the scene and uh, across the screen oh my goodness I can't talk <laughs> <laughs> and in the back is a silhouette of Robert Stack and I really liked that so that's awesome I was so hoping yeah. that they would incorporate him somehow well you have to you, you have can't to. have unsolved mysteries without so. right it would not be would not be okay <laughs> no awesome oh yeah and I wanted to mention uh today we hit 200 Instagram followers no shit yeah <laughs> I was very excited about that. That's excited. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. That makes me so happy. Right? And yeah, last week we talked about Mark Twitchell, which was very fun. Yes. Local, local case. Always, always super always fun for a us. Good one. Yeah. Just got um, to talk shit about him the whole time, and that's always nice. I know. <laughs> it was fun. I like it. As long as he never gets out of jail. <laughs> yep. Then we'll be okay. Yeah. But we'll be fine. <laughs> yes. And we posted our question on our social medias, which was, what is your irrational fear? And we had so many responses, which was fantastic. So thank you guys so, so much. Loved it. Um, we had an overwhelming response of birds. Yeah. So it's not just me. Nope. No, nope. it's a pretty common fear, apparently. Multiple <laughs> people posted that they're afraid of birds, like, and I loved it. Just all birds everywhere, birds. <laughs> birds. <laughs> okay, fair enough. It's great. And Lauren posted that she's afraid of sharks and getting eaten, which... <laughs> is so funny. I also think that's terrifying, but it's not one of those things that comes yeah. up on my, like, yeah. irrational fear radar. Actually, I caught a shark, which was the most incredible experience of I my know. life. So. It was exhilarating and terrifying, but I didn't get eaten. So that was a win. Yeah. So there yeah. you go. <laughs> and Cheryl had one of my favorite responses, which was guinea pigs. So I, irrational. I love it so much. <laughs> every time, because we know her in person and every time it comes up, it's just like, oh, I always forget about that, but it's just, it's so fantastic. They're just so cute. I like, don't get it. I don't understand. What do you think is going to happen? I just don't understand. <laughs> I mean, I think you have more odds of getting bit by a hamster than by a guinea pig. So, <laughs> right. 
You don't even I mean, I've been guinea pigs. No. <laughs> Hardly ever. And they're, they're cute. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I think it's funny. <laughs> well, in Peru, apparently they're delicious. They're a delicacy, I hear. Who knew? Yeah. I not a lot of meat about um, not eating things I've cuddled. And, yeah. well, you know. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say rodents, but <laughs> that works too. You know, cuddle the guinea pig. Yeah. Why I won't let my husband eat rabbit because he wants to. And I'm like, I've oh. snuggled a bunny. So no. Honestly, though, it tastes really good. <laughs> this is what I hear, but I just can't do it. Fair enough. <laughs> You've seen me at work with the bunnies. Right? Yeah. I love the bunnies. So Bunnies freak me out because if you do anything wrong, they'll break their backs and scream and die. And it it's, scares me. Yeah, it's true. But it's they're cute. Hold them like a football, and, I guess. <laughs> and fluffy. Oh, so fluffy. <laughs> Oh, good sidetrack. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's excellent. Yes. Well, are we ready? Uh, as ready as I'm going to be. All right, friends, grab your glass and get cozy. Let's book club it up. Tink, tink. All right. Well, guys, I am so excited to finally be able to talk about Waco. I've been obsessing over this case for months. Honestly, if I'm not writing or editing a different episode, working or sleeping, I am studying this case with every free second that I have. So it'll probably be good for my mental health to finally get all of my thoughts onto paper and to talk about them. And, and you, maybe we'll be able to sleep. <laughs> Hopefully. I just Hopefully. got a prescription refill for my sleep medication, so <laughs> that'll help too. <laughs> Perfect. Finally. <laughs> So this obsession all started with a Netflix series, like Michelle said earlier, which is, of course, called Waco. I had heard of the incident in the past. As you all know, I'm all about the cults. However, I always blindly followed the narrative that the Branch Davidians were at fault for their own destruction. But now after watching the series and reading both Waco, The Survivor Story by David Thibodeau and Stalling for Time by Gary Nosner, and listen to various podcasts, I have definitely formed a very different opinion. Mm-hmm. But before I get to that, I just wanted to mention that the structure for these episodes will be quite different than our book club episodes in the past. We will be splitting the case episodes and the book club episodes up completely. So that way, those that are interested in only listening to the podcast for the case details won't be deterred by a book they haven't read or won't read. And for those that have read the book, they don't have to re-listen to the details of the case if they already know it or if they don't want to. So, of course, we would love if everyone listened to all of the episodes, but we want to give listeners options and we want to give them what they want to hear. So hopefully that's cool with you guys. Hopefully it works well. I guess mm -hmm. we'll find out. Uh, so that means that we'll be doing part one, part two, and then for both books, we'll be doing separate mini episodes for them. Mm-hmm. We plan on releasing more information about the restructuring of our show next week, so stay tuned for that. And we will have an announcement to make at that time as well. Yeah, that's exciting. Mm -hmm. So now that's out of the way, let's dive into part one of the incredibly complicated and devastating case that is Waco. Waco is actually a city in Texas located right between Dallas and Austin. Outside of Waco on the flat Texas prairies is where history took place in 1993 when a standoff between law enforcement and a religious cult resulted in the deaths of 86 people. Four of those were ATF agents, 25 were innocent children, and 57 were members of the religious community known as the Branch Davidians. I totally got goosebumps when you were saying that. I know, I did too. Mm -hmm. It's hard to comprehend actually how many lives that is. Yeah, 25 children. Yeah. That's a kindergarten class. Yeah. Like, that's, that's awful. One is too many. 25? Mm -hmm. That is devastating. Devastating. This case has been highly debated ever since the events took place, as stories from the ATF, FBI, Branch Davidian survivors, media, neighbors, and past members are all vastly different. This makes covering this case quite cumbersome as there is all kinds of contradicting perspectives, opinions, and evidence to take into consideration. Like I said previously, I really deep dived into this case, and while doing so, I tried to take in all sides of the story. And I have very strong feelings about what happened, and even if you don't agree with all of my opinions, 
I'm sure that we can agree that there were many avoidable injustices that took place. Agreed. Mm -hmm. So before the infamous siege and the great loss of life, we we must first establish the who, what, where, when, and why. Let's start with who were the Branch Davidians. When people hear the name, the first thing that generally comes to mind is David Koresh and his religious fanatic, gun-toting, child-abusing cult followers. And I used to be one of those people. Me too. Although I obviously don't agree with some of their beliefs and practices, I don't think they were quite as sinister as they were portrayed. A very popular description of the community comes from a local newspaper, the Waco Tribune Herald, called The Sinful Messiah. The release of this article actually played a role in propelling the attack on the group, but we'll discuss that later on. The article starts with, quote, If you are a Branch Davidian, Christ lives on a threadbare piece of land 10 miles east of Waco called Mount Carmel. He has dimples, claims a ninth grade education, married his Lego wife when she was 14, enjoys a beer now and then, plays a mean guitar, reportedly packs a 9 mil Glock, and keeps an arsenal of military assault rifles, and willingly admits that he is a sinner without equal, end quote. Although David Koresh, born Vernon Howell, became the leader of the group and was known as the Lamb of God, he was actually not the founder of the Branch Davidians. Versions of the group had already been established for 50 years before he came into the picture. So get your red strings ready. This gets (laughs) a bit complicated, but I'll try to keep it brief. The origins started with a small Adventist reform movement in 1929 by Victor T. Houteff. Six years after its establishment, Houteff and 37 Davidians settled into a community two miles west of Waco and called it the Mount Carmel Center after a biblical mountain in Israel. The group continued to grow, and by 1955, they had 95 followers. It was believed that their leader was the only one that could reveal biblical secrets about the end of time and that he could never die. Well, ironically, he died suddenly due to heart failure, and the group splintered off due to instability without a clear leader. Looks like he wasn't able to predict the end of time after all. (laughs) Sorry, Victor. (laughs) His second wife, Florence, was left to take on the leadership role temporarily until the Lord chose the next prophet. They moved nine miles west of Waco and established the new Mount Carmel on a large piece of farmland. During Passover in 1959, Benjamin Rodin, a former Seventh-day Adventist, was one of the 900 people that visited the community. While there, he announced that he was the sign that they were looking for. Rodin's small following, the Branch Davidians, eventually claimed the property. His teachings were centered on the significance of the restored state of Israel, which would be a sign of preparation for Christ's return to earth. He and some followers eventually made the move to Israel prior to his death in 1978. Back in Texas, following her husband's passing, Lois Rodin assumed leadership of the Branch Davidians, which I found very interesting that this was the second time that the group was led by a woman and her teachings even coincided with the messages of the feminist movement in the 70s. Yeah, I like that too. Yeah, it's, I feel like for, I don't know, I was going to say for cults, it seems different, but actually now that I think about it, there has been a lot of women involved in cult leadership. Well, yeah. Yeah, but... But I like that it just like lined up with the feminist movement and... Yeah. Yeah. Lois had a son named George Roden, and he desperately wanted to be the next leader of the Branch Davidians. However, this idea was not embraced by the others, and even his mother had hesitations. Instead, she was more intrigued by a young Bible teacher named Vernon Howell after he visited the group in 1981. He left briefly, but once he returned a few years later, he was able to establish a small following. (laughs) I totally just like looked off screen. I was like playing with my mouse and I'm like, yeah, I'm still talking. (laughs) Focus. (laughs) Focus, Tara. Focus. (laughs) George did not like this. Once he gained control of Mount Carmel, he forced Howell and his followers to leave at gunpoint. So they did, temporarily. However, two years later, the disgruntled men returned to take over the compound. A gunfight broke out involving eight men, including Howell and Roden. The men were arrested and charged for attempted murder. Howell's followers were acquitted, and his own case was declared a mistrial. Roden had owed thousands of dollars in unpaid taxes on Mount Carmel, so Howell and his followers were able to raise enough funds to reclaim the property. 
A fascinating tidbit about George Roden. Two years later, in 1989, he went on to murder his roommate with an axe as he believed the man was sent by Koresh to kill him. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity and was confined to a mental hospital, which he escaped from multiple times. After his last escape in December 1998, he died of a heart attack on the hospital grounds. I love that. I love that he was not criminally sane. Yes. And he wanted to be a leader of a cult and just, just yeah, so many things. I love it. Apparently, he just wasn't charismatic enough. Apparently <laughs> if he, not. If he had that feature, he would have been golden. Right. Howell continued the Davidian practices of living in a communal lifestyle, separated from regular society, leading as an authoritarian and anticipating the end of the world. He then goes on to change his name to David Koresh. One reason given was that it was more of a Hollywood name as he had dreams of becoming a big rock star. The branch even had a company called the Messiah Productions, which toured and recruited band members. It also obviously sounded much more biblical, choosing David as he believed he was now the leader of the House of David. And Koresh, as it is a Hebrew translation for Cyrus, the name of a Persian king whom he believed he was a reincarnation of. <laughs> right. So that is the most bare-boned explanation of the beginning of the Branch Davidians that I could put together. However, if anyone is interested, you could dive way deeper into that rabbit hole. I really only scratched the surface. Mm -hmm. But I honestly really can't comprehend any religious or biblical stuff. I personally am not religious, so it just goes over my head. So hopefully that yeah. made sense because I don't know what it, these words mean when I put them together. <laughs> you did well. You did well. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Next, I want to establish what it was like to live at Mount Carmel and where it was located. The community site was located on a desolate piece of prairie in the heart of Texas on about 77 acres of land. It was pretty much what you would expect for rural Texas, flat farmland and scorching heat. The city of Waco's big claim to fame was the creation of Dr. Pepper by a local pharmacist, so you know it was a happening place. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it is a city with a population of around 104,000 people in the 1990s, it definitely has a small town Old South feel to it. They even have landmark silos that take up two blocks of downtown Waco, which I just love. <laughs> I had no idea that there was that many people in there. I know. I, I didn't think there was either. I totally picture it smaller than where we live, but yeah, same here. But no, actually it's a decent sized city. Yeah. Huh. Outside of Texas, down a long dirt road was where the Branch Davidians called home. The land out there sounds a lot like our prairie land here. As some say, Alberta is the Texas of Canada. <laughs> 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 I'm one of those people. I have a t-shirt that says that. <laughs> love it. Mount Carmel buildings themselves were nothing spectacular. They were mostly made out of plywood and they were always under construction. On the property was a study house, school, shabby cottages, a barn, concrete storage room, a chapel, water tower, and the main building. Only a few houses had running water and for those that did, the pressure wasn't even enough to flush the toilets. Most of them shared their living quarters and slept in bunk beds. The men in the women's quarters had been separated and many that had visited complained mostly about the fire ants and the mosquitoes, which sounds awful. <laughs> it's not good. I hate both of those things. Yeah. <laughs> For those expecting a utopian promised land, they would be very disappointed. However, this was intentional. Koresh explained to the new recruitments that it is meant to be a withering experience and not easy living. People come here to learn something and live by the teachings of the scriptures in order to give their lives meaning. It was challenging and primitive living, so only those that really believed in the message would stay. I did, however, find very conflicting information about whether or not people could come and go as they pleased. It's clear enough that David wanted all the members to be fully committed to the message, but it seemed as though they were still able to speak to family members, and some even worked outside of the compound. Generally, with cults, we see these rights completely taken away, and the followers are segregated from the rest of civilization entirely. While the majority were separated from regular society, it seemed as though there was a bit of leniency here. Although I did listen to a podcast called End of Days that interviewed family members of those that perished, and they told a, a much different story. So again, it's hard to know for sure. Those that made up the community were not the brain-dead followers that most people often assume. 
There were over 100 open and friendly people from all walks of life. It was a diverse group with all different races and cultures. Followers came from all around the world, including Hawaii, Britain, Australia, Mexico, the Caribbean, New Zealand, Philippines, and Canada. Some had been poor, some had been rich, some were educated, and some were not. However, under David, everyone lived as an equal. To get a little bit more insight to the group, I'll briefly discuss some of the members in a little bit more detail. Starting with David Thibodeau, since he is the author of one of our reference books, which provided me with a lot of information for this episode. And I really wish we had the paper copy of that book because it would have been so much easier to write this episode. And I had to listen to it on an audiobook and basically write down what he said and then like try to put it in my own words. And it was complicated. (laughs) Very difficult, but (laughs) But you were doing wonderfully. (laughs) Thank you. You're so kind. (laughs) You always say that regardless. (laughs) But it's true. You did great. (laughs) Well, we've only just begun. Yes. So he was born and raised in Maine, and he had dreams of becoming a musician. He moved to Hollywood in 1989 to join the Musicians Institute. Shortly after he finished school, he met David Koresh and Steve Snyder in a music shop. He later moved to Mount Carmel, as he was told if he wanted to continue playing with them, he would have to fully be part of their community. Wayne Martin was a Harvard-trained lawyer and even ran a practice in Waco. More than 30 people were recruited from Britain, mostly from the School of Theology in Nottingham, England, one being Livingston Fagan, a very intelligent man who used to be an Adventist lay minister and was studying for a master's degree in theology. Steve Snyder was David's right-hand man and was the band's manager. He and his wife, Judy, were both from Michigan. He went on to receive his PhD in comparative religion from the University of Hawaii. He originally wanted to dispute David's teachings, but after discovering David's ability to memorize and interpret scriptures, he realized that the man had incredible abilities. Steve became one of the most devout followers, and when David received a message from God to take Judy as one of his wives, Steve allowed him to do so. That's right, one of his wives. Keep that in mind for later on when we discuss the women and the children of the community. Yeah, it's going to get messy. (laughs) It's going to get culty. But first, (laughs) I wanted to discuss the the funding for the Branch Davidians living quarters and the operations. Like all good cults, some of the money came from wealthy followers that handed over their earnings and their properties. They did have multiple other sources of income to support them as well. They ran an auto shop. The women did seamstress work, and some were involved in selling firearms at gun shows. Outside of Mount Carmel, some followers had jobs that contributed to the cash flow, including the law practice, computer programming, mail delivery, and a landscaping business. The operating expenses ran at about $15,000 per month, which would equal to be about $125 per person, which is pretty damn reasonable if you ask me. Yeah. (laughs) I'd be fine paying $125 rent a month. Yeah. (laughs) Their involvement with weapons is what eventually led the community to its fiery end. They set up booths at gun shows all across the state in order to buy and sell weapons, as well as other hunting gear and accessories. The women made hunting vests called David Koresh's survival wear, and some even included dummy grenades to make them look more tough. (laughs) Which sounds fire. I'm going to start adding grenades to my outfit just to look I think you should. Fantastic. Yeah. Could you start wearing those to work? Oh, yeah. That'll make people very comfortable. <laughs> yeah. Please <laughs> The firearm business was a good source of income for the community, and most of the guns did not even leave the boxes. This was also not something all of the members participated in. There was really only a small group of men that were fully involved in the business, and many others were not interested in target shooting whatsoever. David did encourage everyone to receive training on how to properly handle and use firearms, though, which I absolutely agree is important. Especially if they're going to be there. Yeah. If you're going to be around guns at all, you should know how they work and how to use them safely. 100%. Mm -hmm. For those that did not have a lot of experience, David would issue them a firearm but no ammunition to go with it. However, everyone was told not to allow themselves to be attacked and to defend the community against anyone threatening their existence. 
Fair enough, mm-hmm. <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> they were not to start any violence, but it was important to protect themselves and others, and they had the right to do so according to the Texas Penal Code. For the most part, all of the gun transactions were perfectly legal. They were in business with a licensed gun dealer named Henry McMahon. He would do the buying and the selling of the guns using the funds provided by the Branch Davidians. So a licensed distributor was selling firearms and ammunition to licensed buyers. It's all good. Totally legal. Yep. However, in June 1992, Mount Carmel came up on the radar of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, commonly known as the ATF. There were concerns brought forward from a UPS driver to Waco's sheriff's office, who then immediately contacted the ATF over the dummy grenades they found in some of their shipments. Which, why are you snooping? UPS driver, I'm just saying. Right. Like, <laughs> didn't that stuff be in a box? That's what I thought. <laughs> they said that they had also found a large volume of aluminum and black gun powders that could make illegal grenades. However, the same materials are also used for reloading ammunition, which is completely legal and a common practice for many gun owners and enthusiasts. The other red flag for the ATF officials was that they possessed materials to turn semi-automatic weapons into fully automatic, although there was no evidence of them actually doing so. As David Thibodeau says in his book, it is illegal to own a sawed-off shotgun, but just because you own a shotgun and a hacksaw does not mean you have intentions of sawing off the shotgun. I was screaming when he said that. I was like, yeah. Damn, that's a good point. The ATF did a poor job of investigating the use of weapons in Mount Carmel. Once they saw the records of large gun purchases, they immediately jumped to the conclusion that it was for stockpiling weapons intended for an attack on the government rather than for business purposes. Also, there were no federal or state restrictions on how many firearms one could possess. In 1993, Texas had 68 million registered weapons for 16 million people. That that would be a little over four weapons per person. So by Texas standard, Mount Carmel had actually too few weapons for self-defense, according to most Texans, which is fantastic. It's hilarious. I love that. You know what your problem is? You don't have enough guns. You don't have enough guns, and that's why the government's after you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) In the summer of 1992, with the help of McMahon, David bought a load of legal, semi-automatic rifles and devices that could be used to turn them fully automatic. As long as the proper licenses were purchased, they would be able to convert and sell them to licensed buyers. The trouble was that McMahon ended up backing out of his contract with David after being questioned by the ATF, leaving unregistered guns in the possession of the Branch Davidians. The proper forms were not filled out and they did not pay the appropriate fees, which should have resulted in a fine and suspended sentences for the people involved, not the extreme force that was used on them in the end. Mm -mm. The gun issues were not the only concerns that the ATF had for the Branch Davidians. However, it was the only issue that they had jurisdiction over. Child abuse allegations had come up from past members, and they would use those to justify their actions later on. That being said, now let's get into the topic of the women and the children at Mount Carmel. This is where things get a little bit culty. A little bit? A lot of bit. A lot of bit, yeah. (laughs) Like I'd mentioned before, David had multiple wives. However, it wasn't always that way. His first and only legal wife was Rachel Jones, who was only 14 when they got married. Rachel practically grew up at Mount Carmel as her father was a longtime follower dating back to the 1940s. He and his wife gave permission for the two to be wed, which, although morally is not right, legally it was. I hate that. Me too. And don't worry, I'll go off on that. Super uncomfortable. (laughs) Me too. Things took a turn in 1985 when David returned from Jerusalem, revealing that he had a vision that told him he needed to have a child with his wife's 11-year-old sister. Barf. I just got the chills. Mm. He claimed that it is not what he wanted, but he had to listen to the voice that told him to take Michelle as his wife. 
Rachel was devastated, especially since she had just given birth to David's first son, Cyrus. It's not what he wanted. Bullshit. This is so hard for me. Okay. Poor. Poor you. Yeah. They were aware that this could and should result in legal issues as it would lead to statutory rape. But it was what God had wanted, so it must be done. Rachel's hesitations dissipated when she had a powerful dream that showed her if David denied the commands of God, he would be destroyed. So she allowed them to proceed. I just get this image of him like giving subliminal messages to her while she's sleeping. So she has this crazy dream, right? Oh my God. I didn't even like, think of that. <laughs> I to- that's totally where I went. And I was like, you yes. caused this. Yeah. Like, you whispered in her ear all night long or something. Right? Good point. <laughs> yeah. Perry and Mary Bell Jones agreed for the second time to allow a young daughter of theirs to marry David Koresh. The purpose of this was to create an inner circle of children who would form the group of elders to surround the heavenly chariot or throne. Yeah, I don't know what that means, but it sounds (laughs) real important. And a little disturbing. Yeah, you know, a little bit. The topic of the young wives and children were a common discussion for study sessions with the group. This was so the followers would understand why David had to follow his visions, and it would also wear down people's suspicions about his motives. Once this was accepted, the doors opened up for him to abuse his power and take in more young women as wives. In 1987, 12-year-old Michelle became David's spiritual wife and sexual partner, along, yeah, along with 14-year-old Karen Doyle, 17-year-old Robin Buns, and 20-year-old Diana Okamoto. Diana later left with her two sons, and they were two out of three of David's children that avoided death at Mount Carmel. The other one was the son of Robin. Unfortunately, this list continues. In 1988, 19-year-old Nicole Gent was chosen. Then in 1989, 13-year-old Aisha Gayarfis was also chosen, which was the same year that Michelle gave birth to her first daughter, Serenity. It's a lot of things happening here. There's so many things. Most of the women considered it an honor to be chosen to have a baby for God and to be in the house of David. At least that's what they proclaimed to others. Women continued to be chosen by God, some even in their 30s or 40s. Some were the wives of other followers, and some were the mothers of his young wives. Ew. So much ew. (laughs) This part, when I was reading about it, um, got me very, very riled up, so I'm trying my best to stifle all my comments. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Deep breaths. Mm -hmm. By April of 1993, he had 15 wives, 17 children, and two more along the way. Yeah, that seems pretty culty to me. Yep. Quick note, polygamy is illegal in all 50 states, so that is why Rachel was technically his only legal wife. Although the women were supposedly chosen by God, they all happened to be very attractive. David joked about this by saying, well, shouldn't God's children be beautiful? I would say in God's eyes, all people are beautiful, right? I feel like that's something he would say. Yeah. Yep. So you're just a pig. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No kidding. Even though David seemed to have unlimited sexual partners, the rest of the followers were forced to remain celibate, even if they had been married for years. The living quarters were eventually divided as well to enforce this. David was adamant that his relations were for procreation only and had nothing to do with pleasure. In fact, it was almost a burden for him. I'm sure it was real tough. Uh, Yeah, you big gross pig. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Yeah, big gross pig. (laughs) (laughs) Your insults when they just like come flying out out of left field. I just love it so much. Just like when you called somebody an ass hat that one time and it just... (laughs) totally caught me off guard. (laughs) I have no filter. (laughs) So just to be clear, I know I said in the beginning that I don't think that the group was as sinister as they had been portrayed. However, I obviously do not agree with what David is doing here. Even if there was consent from the girls and their parents, this is 100% statutory rape 
And of course, the girls are going to be are going to go along with it. They've been told their whole lives that only the special ones would be chosen and it would be the greatest honor to have a child for God. So yeah, like a 12-year-old is going to stand up to the pressures of their parents, the Lamb of God, and the entire community of over 100 people and say no? That's not going to happen. They did not have a choice. No. And at 12, you barely even understand what's happening in your body. Exactly. To ask you to be sexually active with a grown-ass man, to carry a child with said grown-ass man, and bring a child of God, that's a lot. Like, puberty's hard enough, man. No kidding. (laughs) That's a lot to take on, and it's so not right. It's not okay. Even though Texas law stated that the legal age for marriage was 14, as long as permission was granted by the parents, it doesn't make it right, especially when it's a 30, with a 33-year-old man and the purpose is solely about sex. Yeah, it's not okay. The legal age of consent is 17. So for anyone under that age, with or without parental permission, cannot legally consent to have sex. If the parents are involved with this, they are committing the offense of endangering a child. If the girl has a baby under these conditions, the charges against the father is moved to aggressive sexual assault. If the girl is under 14 years, it is a first-degree felony, and if they are between 14 to 17 years, it is a second-degree felony. So, yeah, Dave, so clearly, David could have been found guilty of multiple crimes here, and he could have been and, locked up for a very long time. Yeah, and like it's pedophilia, right? Absolutely. So, like I said, you big gross pig. Exactly. But the problem is proving him to be guilty is very difficult Mm -hmm. with a group like this that would likely not testify against their leader and their way of life. So it'd be very challenging for the rest of the group to actually go along with that. Mm -hmm. That's where the the problem comes from. It'd be a prosecutor's nightmare. Yeah. A former disgruntled Branch Davidian, Mark Bro, had many accusations against David and the treatment of children in Mount Carmel. He claimed that the children were often severely spanked with a wooden paddle were forced to do punishing exercises, were deprived of food and water, and even once said he believed the group was going to murder and sacrifice a child. He even brought in a film crew to make a documentary in order to expose David, which just, in my opinion, I think Mark was pretty, a little bit out to lunch. I'm sure some I of think, what he's saying is certainly yeah. true, but he, I, he was at one point David's right-hand man, like Steve Schneider now is. Mm-hmm. And I think what happened was he wanted to also be in a position like David, but mm-hmm. there's David and then there's everybody else below him. So he couldn't be at that same level as him. Yeah. And so he basically got kicked out and now he's coming up with all these accusations, which again, that's what I, that's what I got I'm from sure, it too. Yeah. Some of it is probably true. I know they spanked their children. I know that David Thibodeau talked about it, but I mean, that's not the worst thing in the world. You can no, certainly disagree within reason. And David Thibodeau did say it was within reason, even though he mm-hmm. personally didn't agree with it either. He did not see it as a as abuse. Mm-hmm. It was not overdone like how Mark was saying. Yeah. Eventually, the group was checked out in 1992 by the Texas Child Protective Services, which led to a six month investigation. However, they were unable to turn up any evidence. In order to conceal Koresh's spiritual marriage with Michelle, in which he had fathered her children, he had David Thibodeau agree to marry her to keep up appearances. The charge of statutory rape was never formally made against David. It has often been asked why he would deliberately break the law. Was he trying to create a conflict that he had been predicting in his scriptures? Is the big question. I think it's very possible. Yeah. But at the same time, I think that he was very driven by sex. Yeah. Right? I think he didn't care. I think he thought he had this power and he... Yeah. Even but, if he wasn't consciously making that decision to lead them yeah. to, you know, a terrible end, he is knowingly doing illegal things that yeah. people will find out about. So what do you expect? And pe- people will be angry about. And you're in Texas. Right? One of the most right. religious places 
you know, they're yeah. right in the Bible belt, they say. So yeah, yeah people are going to have a problem with it. They're not going to be okay with that. Yeah, no. And it's children. Yeah. Nobody's okay when it's children. Exactly. So of course you're going to get caught. Mm-hmm. So six months before the attack against the Branch Davidians, a precursor event known as Ruby Ridge took place. A former army soldier and factory worker named Randy Weaver was trying to escape the corrupt world with his family. They fled to Idaho in order to survive the end times that they thought were approaching. They believed an apocalyptic battle was approaching, as described by the book of Revelation, between God and evil. Disputes over trespassing on neighbor's land and frequent gunfire caught the attention of local authorities. Randy attended a meeting of the Aryan nations and ended up selling two sawed-off shotguns to an undercover ATF agent and was arrested for making and distributing illegal weapons. Later, he was released on bail and never returned for his trial date. He and his family stayed in their remote cabin on Ruby Ridge and never left the property in order to avoid arrest. On August 21st, 1992, a surveillance team went to check out the place, scouting out a location in order to arrest Randy. Things went awry when the family dogs caught the scent of the officers and started barking. Randy Weaver, his 14-year-old son Sammy, and a friend, Kevin Harris, armed themselves and went out to investigate. No one is certain how it exactly began, but bullets started to fly and three lay dead on the ground. Deputy Marshal William Deegan, Sammy Weaver, and one of the family dogs. Not the dog. I know. (laughs) Weaver and Harris retreated to the cabin where Vicky and the rest of the children waited. The 10-day standoff began and the FBI was called in. Immediately, the FBI set up snipers and Dick Rogers who was in charge of the hostage rescue team, quote, instructed the snipers that before a surrender announcement was made, they could and should shoot all armed adult males appearing outside of the cabin, end quote. This contradicted FBI policy that states agents may use their weapons only to protect themselves or the lives of others, or if they're in danger of serious bodily harm. So not surprisingly, the order of the HRT resulted in disaster. And that just makes me so mad. So angry. I read that part out loud to my husband because we watched Waco together and I was like, this is about Ruby Ridge. And he was like, oh my God. (laughs) I just, my blood boils. (laughs) I know. It makes me angry. Yeah. The family was unaware of the FBI's presence. So when they heard helicopters overhead, Randy, his 16-year-old daughter, and Kevin stepped outside to take a look. With no warning, Randy was shot and wounded by the sniper. Another shot was fired as they retreated back into the cabin. The sniper knew that he had missed the shot on Randy, but what he didn't know at the time was that the bullet went through the door, through Vicky's head, and through Kevin's chest. Kevin survived, but Vicky lay dead on the floor, holding her 10-month-old baby in her arms. Again, rage. Rage. This makes me rage. As a hunter, or anybody that has any any training with guns, you don't shoot anything if you don't know what's behind it. Exactly. You just shot into a cabin with a family and children inside. Like, yeah. Oh, I know. Makes me so mad. And also they had no idea, no idea that the FBI or snipers were out there. They're just standing out there. I'm sorry, but how did you fuck up that bad and miss that shot? Just saying, just saying. (laughs) How did you get through sniper training? (laughs) Like, not that I wanted him to kill Randy, obviously, obviously, but what happened there? It just all was so bad. Yep. The FBI decided that it was time to bring in the negotiators a little bit late, if he asked me, since now there are two dead and two injured in the cabin. Like, yeah, let's shoot first, talk later. That's a great plan. That's way to get things done, man. Mm Mm-hmm. It wasn't going to be easy for negotiators to build trust with Randy after the attack on his family, so they decided to bring in an outsider the family could trust. Former Green Beret James Bo Gritz, a Vietnam vet and a liaison for various right-wing groups, was brought in to serve as a mediator. Along with Jack McLam, another right-wing figure, and the coaching of the negotiating team, they convinced the Weaver family to surrender peacefully. 
Weaver was charged in federal court, but given the government's misconduct, the murder, conspiracy, and making and possessing unregistered weapons charges were all acquitted. He was left with only the charge of failure to appear in court, and the federal government awarded him with $100,000 in damages and $1 million to each daughter. So the federal government's like, yeah, we done fucked up. Here's some money. We fucked up. Sorby can't bring your wife and son back, but here's some money. Here's some money. In the end, (laughs) yeah. In the end, the negotiating team was happy with the results as it showed how good communication can resolve such a dangerous situation without further loss of life. They hoped that the FBI would take this into consideration next time they were in a similar situation. Unfortunately, as we will find out, they did not learn from their mistakes and the next standoff would be much more deadly. Ominously, back at Mount Carmel, the Branch Davidians heard of the attack on Ruby Ridge and they were shaken by the fact that their own government could use military force on a family with four children. The Ruby Ridge incident did not look good on the ATF, and they were desperate for some good publicity. The agency was facing budget cuts, so when they caught wind of an apocalyptic cult that was stockpiling weapons and ammunition, they wanted to use it to make a point. They started planning an attack, focusing more on how it will look to the world rather than how it will realistically play out. They were going to give the world a really big show, and that's certainly what they did. And that is where I'm going to end part one. In part two, we will be discussing the initial deadly attack on Mount Carmel, the 51-day siege, and the devastation that followed. Awesome. (laughs) Well done. Thank you. My (laughs) sources were Waco, A Survivor Story by David Thibodeau, Stalling for Time by Gary Nosner, End of Days, BBC Radio, Five Live Podcast, Wikipedia, and WacoHistory.org. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. There's a lot to digest there. I know. And that's like bare minimum. Like that's I cut surface. I cut this down so much. There was so much more that I'm like, I gotta put this and this and this. I'm like, no, I can't, I can't put all of it. It just it's so much. There's so, so much. But you did a really good job of just covering the big, the big parts, the important parts, Mm -hmm. all the things that I have scribbled in my book you covered. So. Oh, well, perfect. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just try to make it not as convoluted because there's just so much happening. So many different, so many opinions and perspectives and so many opinions. That's one thing with this case. If you Google it, like you just see people just shitting on all these people. Like it's just all opinion, opinion, opinion. There's no this is the facts. This is how it happened. It's all like, this is what I think happened. And this is how it, yeah. Yeah. Anyways. And I mean, even us, like we're forming of our course. own opinions and we absolutely form your opinions as well. Yeah. Um, in your research, I meant to ask you, um, has the Texas law changed about the marriage at 14? I don't know. I was actually going to look that up, but I'm sorry. I forgot to include that, but I could certainly look it up for yeah, next week's we'll episode. That next- yeah. That's a good yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, I would be really interested to know uh, what laws are the same and what, what's changed. If, if it's not changed, I feel like they should get on that. Yeah, yeah, they probably yeah. should. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I don't really know what the laws are anywhere for that because it's not really something that I've had to look into. <laughs> no, right? I, you would hope that it's like once you're an adult. Yeah. If you can vote, you should be able to get married, right? Right. I feel like the age of consent is 16. Am I way off? I have no idea. I'll look it up. I'm just going to have to look it up. (laughs) I'm going to stop saying things like I, like I have any idea what I'm talking about, but we'll look it up for next week's episode. I mean, you and I both signed our marriage oaths at the registries that said that we weren't marrying our grandfather or cousin or whatever. I'm sure there was an age on there too, but I just don't remember. Yeah, there probably was. I just remember Oh, we don't have to get blood taken to make sure that we're not related. Cool. That's, right? that's great because it's yeah, required in like, some places. <laughs> yeah, I'm signing this because I want to marry the love of my life. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> and he's not my grandpa. Cool. Yes. So all good in the hood. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. Man, I just, I love this case so much, but it just gives me so many feels and I get so angry at both sides, both sides of the situation. Like they fought, 
both sides fucked up on this. So badly. There's it not was like, one side that's like, yep, absolutely. You are right. And the other side is wrong. No, there's no shit that happened on both sides and it fires me up. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. I'm very hot now because I'm like raging. <laughs> I know that whole like section where you're talking about his marriages and mm-hmm. sexual encounters with all the minors. I'm like, yeah. Fuming mad because what mother in their right fucking mind says that that's going to be okay? Like, uh, you're just going to let your pre teenage daughter get married and get screwed by this old dude so she can have babies for him? No, like, no, you should be doing a better job protecting your children. So fucked. It speaks to a lot to his brainwashing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Obviously and very convincing. Even like a lot of the followers are like, yeah, this is not cool, but they went along with it eventually. Right. Like nobody really spoke it's amazing. Out. It's amazing what you can get away with in the name of God. Yes. In the name of God. And when you're a part of a group, mm-hmm. a group, if it seems like everybody agrees on one thing, mob mentality, could, right? Mob mentality. Exactly. Like you could there could be a fact, like a 100%, like, we know this is fact, we know this is fiction, but if everybody agrees, like, oh, no, the fiction, no, that's that's fact, and right. everybody goes with it, and everybody just, you know, pretends like they strongly believe in it, well, then that's right. going to make everybody else be like, oh, I guess I don't actually know, and they're going to start questioning, right. and they're just going to yeah. go along with it. Yeah, it's blue, yeah. and some cult leader's going to be like, actually, yeah, it's purple. Yeah. And then everybody's like, well, maybe I just haven't been seeing it right my whole life. Exactly. It's actually purple. It's actually really interesting, the psychology mm-hmm. in that. It's really a legit thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyways, that is yeah. part one. Of Clearly, we Waco. have feels about uh, Waco. <laughs> so many feels. So many feels. <laughs> I've just consumed so much Waco information. Like I've watched the show twice now. I've read yeah. both books twice now. Like and plus other podcasts and things. Like it's it's a lot going on up there. Twenty four seven Waco. Seriously. <laughs> Please keep in mind that Tara is working a full time job while doing this, and she edits the show. And I she's incredible. So. Yeah, you should see my house. Though my life is falling apart around me. <laughs> Well, next book is mine, so yeah, you can clean your house when I'm doing mine. (laughs) Some laundry dishes that have been neglected for longer than I want to admit. (laughs) That's fine. No judgment from me. Good. (laughs) Excellent. Well, I think that'll do it for today. Yeah. Are you ready for some fluff and stuff? Of course I am. You notice I don't have anything written down. I know. I'm. I'm afraid. Today is a very simple question, and I'll explain it afterwards. But my question today is, are you happy? I am wonderfully happy. (laughs) Ah, I figured you would say that. Yeah. You're always a happy person. (laughs) Typically, unless I've had some sort of, like, psychotic break, which has happened. But, you know. Usually it's just, like, a day here and there where you have an off day, right? Yeah. I The reason I asked this, I found a really interesting TikTok account is where I found it, but it's just called, are you happy? And he travels the world and he walks up to people and he just asks, are you happy? And it is <laughs> actually, I was bawling watching this because people would be so moved. They would just immediately like would start to cry or just they'd either start to cry because they're like, you know, things are going on and they'd just like break down and talk about their life or the other way around. They'd just be like so ecstatic to be like, yes, like, let me tell you about my life. Oh, is so moving. Crazy. So everybody should go and just check it out if you need a good cry. <laughs> yeah. So Tara, are you happy? <laughs> I'm happy. I'm happy that we get to do this. And sometimes I just take a step back and be like, man, we're just, we're doing something that we just always dreamed of doing, you yeah, know, didn't did. actually think it would happen. But here we are just talking about fucking true crime, like we love to do. And it's so cool. And- and I'm so happy that our friendship has bloomed so much more from where yeah, it was. Absolutely. Like through this, you're yeah. like the first person on my Snapchat list because Snapchat, you constantly, your Every name day. like gets brought up all the time. My kids were talking about you the other day, like, oh, are you talking to Tara today? And James was talking into the mic the other day. And it's yeah. just so cool that we get to do this thing that brings us so much joy. And it's, exactly. it's fun. And, 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 and we talk about murder, so... I know. It's so funny how something so dark and twisty can make us so happy. So happy. I know. And 
and friends and family too that talk about the podcast. Like it's lovely. And when like I tell people about it and some people I have hesitations to be like, yeah, uh, this is what I'm doing because my other friends will bring it up. And I always think like, oh, they're going to think I'm weird or stupid. And they're just like, yeah. oh, that's so cool. What is it about? And then I get to like, just the results gosh. that I get too. Yeah. And I get to talk yeah. about it and I'm like, it's so fun. And like often Tara and I will get messages from our friends and then like we send them to each other because it's yeah. like, check it's out this sweet message. Like, because you know, right now we're just talking to each other is what it feels yeah. like, but we put yeah. it out into the world and, yeah. and people actually listen to it. And it's, we have 200 Instagram followers. Yes. What the hell? And over 900 downloads. Over 900. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. <laughs> so amazing. It is. So thank you, everybody. Yes. It's, uh, we just hope that everybody enjoys it as much as we do and that you just feel like you're hanging out talking about true crime with your friends because that's literally that's, that's, that's what we're, we're doing here. that's why we want to yeah. do this is just so we can talk about it passionately because it's what we fucking want to do <laughs> exactly and we're kind of funny I think <laughs> sometimes yeah <laughs> I love going through and listening for our out of context quotes because sometimes I'm just like what <laughs> where does that stuff come from I know me too yeah. I, like last episode I literally laughed out loud multiple times <laughs> when we were talking about Mark Twitchell and our irrational fears because yes. we're hilarious and just we're very honest and we're very real like yeah exactly we're not pretending to be anybody that we're not so no exactly like we're just normal fucking women that we have busy crazy lives but this is what we want to do to clear our heads and exactly. just dive into something and learn about something and it's so cool exactly and Sundays and Thursdays are now like our favorite days because exactly recording days and these days exactly they're huge yeah yeah so that's us we that's love to us. talk about us yeah. as you can tell we already warned them about that in like the first episode so yeah, exactly they didn't know that by now right I'm sure they figured that out right so yes i ask everybody are you happy and if you want to give a little bit of an explanation that's great if not you can just say say yes or no say whatever you yeah. want yeah and if you're not happy, we hope that you can find ways to make yourself happy. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've done a lot of mental health training and mm-hmm. first aid and that kind of stuff. Always, always can Shoot us out. a DM. Yep. It's fine. Even if you're yep. just like, hey, what do you think about this case? And, you know, if that's going to get your mind off of something, hell yeah, we'll talk about yeah. that shit with you. Absolutely. Or even resources. Like, I have brochures, like, fucking up the yin-yang. Sucks. So, yeah. Yep. We can give recommendations. Not that we are any way professionals, but just as just very passionate about mental health. Exactly. Just passionate. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. reach out if you need. Yeah. Yeah. Because we all go a little crazy sometimes. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Answer our question. Let us know what you think about the episode. Tell us your feels about Waco. Um, email us at murdermerlot at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at Murder Merlot Podcast, Facebook at Murder Merlot Podcast, and Twitter at Murder and Merlot One. Words. (laughs) Words. God, they're hard. (laughs) You can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts. We would love if you subscribed. And if you don't, you're dead to me. So should we tell what our next book is? Well, or do we want to wait? Well, it's up to you. It's your book. We might as well. Sure. All right. Let's do it. I mean, we've been talking about Waco for so long at the end of these episodes that let's throw something else in there. Yeah. So I'm really excited about this next book that we're covering. It's called Labyrinth. Focus on the LA. So they're in capital letters. It's written by Randall Sullivan. And it's the true story of the City of Lies, which is the stories of Biggie Smalls and Tupac Shakur. Which, if you remember, is like my unsolved case that I have to know all the things about. So yeah. I'm very excited for this book. Yeah, we talked about in the, like one of our very first episodes, mm-hmm. and that was the case that you yeah. loved. So. Yeah, we talked, it was the oh, Evelyn Boswell episode. Yeah, so that was probably yeah. like our third, third episode, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I honestly don't know pretty much anything about it, and it's going to be so much different than what we've covered so far so it's gonna be so fun yeah i'm very very excited and you're gonna be passionate about it so i'm gonna be just so excited to listen to you 
I mean, because I, I already think I know, but, but nobody actually knows. So well, we haven't started the book yet. So maybe yeah. we'll form some different thoughts on that. Yeah. yeah. So exciting. So hopefully you guys will read along. Yeah. Excellent. Remember to drink wine because it's not good to keep things bottled up. Bye. Bye.